and welcome. This is Exhibit AI, a podcast exploring contemporary legal issues for tomorrow's technology, presented by the Center for Legal and Court Technology at William & Mary Law School. I'm your host, April Sawhill, AI Senior Research Fellow at CLCT. Today's episode continues our series on smart cities and explores the rise of misinformation and disinformation. With me to discuss this intriguing topic, our guests, Daniel Shen, CLCT Cybersecurity Research Fellow, and Brennan McGovern, CLCT Graduate Fellow. Daniel and Brennan, welcome to the series, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's good to be here. How's it going? Daniel, I'm going to start with you. Please briefly recap for us what smart cities are and how they are beneficial. Sure, April. So smart cities represent the next stage in automation in our critical infrastructure. So if you think all the way back when the Romans developed the Roman aqueducts. It automated water delivery, which really people didn't have to go manually, you know, pick up buckets and go to a well, collect the water and bring it back to their homes because the water delivery system of the aqueducts automated everything so people could spend their time and resources in other areas. Well, With the rise of Internet of Things devices and the rise of cheaper technology, we have sensors that are able to bring information about an infrastructure area at a granular level for city planners or city officials to uh, use. And city operators can adjust city resources to meet, let's say, unusual demands of services, for example, During the summer months, everybody might turn on their air conditioning at the same time, which might bring a surge of electricity usages. Um, City operators can allocate power resources to meet those unusual demands. During normal times, however, uh, city operators can use sensor information to reallocate resources at an optimal level. So uh, one example that I like to kind of bring is earlier this year, In South Korea, the police coordinated with city traffic management system to adjust city light signals for a car that was carrying a critically injured patient. At the time where the patient was located, it would have taken about an hour for the car to arrive at the nearest hospital due to traffic at the city. But due to this adjustment of the traffic light signals with nice coordination done with the police officer, it only took the car 15 minutes for the patient to arrive at the hospital and get critical care, decreasing the treatment time that was required uh, for the individual. So, you know, automation definitely brings, you know, efficiencies and a lot of good uh, potential for our city infrastructure. And just want to mention that automation can also be applied to information uh, systems in general, including with social media websites, um, automating, you know, different streams of information for users to quickly absorb. Although automation definitely brings a lot of positive good in our society, it can also bring unprecedented problems that was never really foreseen before by the automator designers and it can actually bring disorder within our society if left unchecked. Daniel, thank you for the summary. And that's a great example in South Korea 
of how we can positively use automation in a smart city. Brennan, turning to you, let's discuss how automation is being used to spread false information and the greater consequences. To begin, the terms fake news, misinformation, and disinformation are often used interchangeably. Is there a difference in what those terms mean? Yeah, and I think that's a really good place to start because there are terms that tend to be used interchangeably, but they do have very specific, distinct meanings. Misinformation is sort of just a broader term that can apply to false information that is spread. It could be online, it could be word of mouth, person to person but almost like an urban legend or an urban myth that kind of spreads on its own. And it, it, it's false information to be sure, but the difference is that disinformation has the element of intent. There's usually some sort of malevolent actor that is actively spreading the disinformation through either propaganda or some other means. And we see that a lot on social media. Anybody who's on you know, Facebook, Twitter, has probably uh, experienced disinformation in some way or another. And as I mentioned, there's the element of intent behind it. So that's what really separates the two. What is it about social media that makes it such a potent tool for spreading disinformation? Sure. So what it really comes down to, first and foremost, in my opinion, is human nature. There was an MIT study that found basically the same thing, that we as humans are drawn to information that is more novel, that is unusual, that grabs our attention. And that's why fake news or disinformation can go so viral is because if you're scrolling Facebook, what are you more likely to click on? Something that's so out there that, whoa, I, what are you talking about? Or, you know, just a news article that it's something that sounds more normal, something that you already, you know, expected. For an example, when, uh, you know, disinformation really became a um, issue that a lot of people were talking about nationally and internationally was in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election and after the 2016 presidential election, when much of what the Mueller report by special counsel Robert Mueller established was that there were Russian intelligence units deliberately spreading disinformation in the American populace, mostly using Facebook, a little bit of Twitter, a couple other sites, but Facebook was the main medium for this. And what are you more likely to click on as an article on Facebook? You know, would it be a detailed, nuanced discussion of what Hillary Clinton's tax policy was or her healthcare policy or Donald Trump's healthcare policy, for example? Or would it be an article that the Democrats are running a underground sex dungeon in the Washington, D.C. pizza parlor? Whether you were inclined to believe that or not, that's what's going to draw in more eyes. That's what's going to draw more attention. So that's the first step. That's the human nature element of it. The second part of the equation is that these social media platforms like Facebook are designed and the algorithms are so finely tuned to give users more of what they want, to show you what you already like. And that makes a lot of sense in how it was originally intended. If I am a big basketball fan and I, you know, uh, love watching basketball highlights and I like LeBron James highlights, it's going to show me more NBA hi highlights. It's going to show me more NBA news, more so than it would, you know, my mom who doesn't care about the NBA. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. But where it becomes an issue is with when people's entire news diet and every the news they're consuming is filtered through these algorithms, it's showing them more news that they already are agree with. If you like certain news articles, it's going to show you more content that confirms your pre-established worldview. And this is where people fall into the sort of echo chambers or rabbit holes that we see on on social media. So what you're describing, Brennan, what I'm hearing in talking about these rabbit holes and echo chambers, and sometimes people also call it an epistemic bubble, is where you're receiving sources or evidence 
from just one side of the spectrum because the algorithms are tailoring to you what your purported interests are, correct? Correct. And that's why social media is making us as a people more polarized or, you know, a society, I should say, more polarized. I'll focus on the United States. In 2020, study found on Facebook, political campaigns and other advertisers can micro-target their users. We give Facebook all this data on our age, our race, our where we live, what we like, what television shows we like, what sports teams we like, what movies we like. Facebook then sells this data to advertisers. Now, if those advertisers are, let's say, Nike, and they're trying to sell a product, they can target people between 16 and 30 who are physically active and like running. That's, you know, again, reasonable people can disagree on how much data these companies have about us and whether that's a good thing or not. But that's advertisers trying to sell a product. But when the advertisers are political campaigns and they're micro-targeting, they're, they're really narrowing down on who they're advertising to. And so other people aren't seeing these ads. So these ads are getting more outlandish, more provocative, and more, they're less seen. They're only seen by the people who are intended to see it. And in 2020, one study found that it, it would cost 50% more for a Bernie Sanders campaign ad to get in front of a conservative or Trump-leaning voter than it would to get in front of a liberal voter. So these campaigns are only advertising to the base, the people who already agree with them, and, and their ads are not being seen by the broader populace, and, they're not, and the debate is not being had by the broader populace. And that's what leads to this more polarized society. This is not just an issue in the United States. The New York Times has actually done some very excellent reporting on this about YouTube's algorithm, which operates similarly to Facebook's. YouTube being falling under Alphabet, which also owns Google. In Brazil, they found that large sector of young Brazilians were radicalized in the lead up to their last election of President Jair Bolsonaro, who is, was considered to be a fringe far-right figure who people didn't think could win. But people started watching right-leaning content on YouTube and through their autoplay and their AI algorithms were led down towards uh, more extreme and extreme content that was seen to radicalize a lot of young Brazilians. It led to the election of Mr. Bolsonaro, and you can just Google his name and see a long list of controversial, really terrible things he said about women, about indigenous Brazilians, and, and many others. And that was a a surprising election that a lot of people not didn't see coming. All this is to say that these algorithms, by giving us more and more of what we want, it sends people down a potentially radical path. Now that we understand better how algorithms are being automated and used for micro-targeting and the other examples that you provided us, how do we move forward? And what are lawmakers doing about the spread of misinformation or disinformation? Sure. So there's, I think, two couple big buckets we can put things in. So the first thing is that at the very beginning of the pandemic, a lot of the, which is now we're in the 13th month or so of, uh, a lot of these platforms took a very strong stance against disinformation and misinformation that was being spread about coronavirus, COVID-19, and not so much then, but more now vaccines. They said they were just going to take down anything that was provably false and potentially dangerous, and they were going to label. I mean, to this day, if you go and get your vaccine selfie and try to post it on Instagram, there will be a little disclaimer on it that says, learn the facts about the vaccine. No matter any post related to COVID-19, that's going to pop up. 
and this is all, these are all good things and these platforms should be, uh, you know, in my opinion, applauded for that, but they have sort of tipped their hand and that, that by showing they are able to identify false information or, or any information on a certain topic and their AI and their algorithms are actually very powerful and could be used to ferret out some of this dense information. So many of these platforms have taken a more aggressive stance even in the just past couple months since the Capitol riots on January 6th, where they have removed some very prominent accounts of uh, including the former president from Facebook and Twitter. They have labeled more disinformation. They have taken a more aggressive stance without actually passing any regulation. So I would kind of lump this as a, as a market pressure situation where these platforms are, like I said, responding to market pressures where lawmakers can get involved. I think there's a two areas. The first is section 230, which is a buzzword in, tech regulation. It comes from Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act passed in the 1990s that said that platforms would not be held civilly liable for content that was posted on their platform. For example, if you publish an op-ed in the New York Times and it's found to be libelous or slanderous, the New York Times as well as the author can be held liable. If you post something on Facebook or Twitter that is found to be libelous or slanderous, Facebook or Twitter cannot be held liable. There's some very robust debate about whether that is the standard that should continue now 20 some years later where these platforms have become so powerful and almost are more content producers or publishers than they are just you know, neutral tech platforms. And this is an issue that has gotten bipartisan support. Former President Trump talked a lot about repealing Section 230. It was his opinion and the opinion of many in the Republican Party that it was being used to censor conservatives on these social media sites. But President Biden, in, he has not spoken about it as president, but in the primaries about, I believe this January 2020, suggested repealing Section 230 altogether. I don't know if that's as far as lawmakers would be willing to go, but there has been a lot of talk in both parties about reforming or reshaping Section 230 so that tech platforms are more accountable for the content that they host. And then the second way that has gotten a lot of discussion on Capitol Hill is antitrust measures. Now, I will not uh, pretend to be an antitrust expert. That's an area of law that is very complicated. But really, it's just taking a look at are these companies, are these platforms too powerful where they are controlling, as I mentioned, social interaction, news consumption, entertainment, you know, many of these platforms are getting into, you know, streaming, like Netflix, you know, Facebook has Facebook Watch, Amazon has Amazon Prime Video, there are, you know, YouTube has its YouTube premium subscriptions. Are these platforms and these companies getting too big and too powerful? And is there a legal means of breaking them up? And like I said, that, that's a discussion probably for a future podcast. Absolutely. That's an interesting area of the law and it brings in a lot of um, different issues. And so, uh, Brennan, thank you for providing us with that information. And Daniel, I'm going to return to you now. In addition to dis and misinformation, there's other ways that automation perpetuate falsehoods. And one of those is deep fakes. What are deep fakes and how do they work? Sure, April. So deep fake, which is a combination of deep learning and fake, is used to describe synthetic media, whether it's photo, video, or even audio content, which is often created with malicious intent to spread disinformation, which by the way, disinformation is false information that is spread deliberately. Using deep learning algorithms, which they are a subset of artificial intelligence technologies, 
users can create realistic but fake media with minimal manual labor because deep learning algorithms are the engine for automating the creation of deep fake media. Uh, among the deep fake community, deep fake technology has been used to create face swapped pornography and even digitally undressing women in photographs and in video media. During the 2020 election, fortunately, we didn't see any campaigns using deep fake technology to tarnish opposing candidates, but deep fakes have been produced for satire purposes. So Daniel, you've mentioned some pretty concerning uses of deep fakes. Do we have any national or state laws that address the threat of deep fakes? So fortunately in Virginia, on March 18, 2019, the Virginia General Assembly amended the state statute prohibiting the defamation of revenge pornography, or as the law specifically says, unlawful defamation or sale of images of another person. And that law was amended to cover media generated by deepfake software. So if somebody uses deepfake software to produce deepfake pornography of another person without that person's consent, then that person is potentially criminally liable under this Virginia statute. I would like to note, however, that this law only covers deep fakes produced within the pornography context. So if somebody created a deep fake media of a person that is fully closed, even if they're covered, then this law will not apply. At the national level, Congress addressed the issue of deep fakes through the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2020, also known as NDAA. The NDA for the fiscal year of 2020 included provisions to address the threat of deep fakes from a national security perspective. These provisions are written into section 5709 and 5724 of the NDAA. With respect to deep fakes, the NDAA requires the federal government to do three main things. First, the federal government is required to initiate research on foreign weaponization of deep fakes. Second, the NDAA requires the federal government to monitor foreign deep fakes disinformation activities targeting US elections. And finally, the law establishes a deep fake prize competition to encourage the research or commercialization of deep fake detection technologies. Well, these are definitely encouraging legal developments, and I expect we will see additional states adopt laws addressing deep fakes. How can an individual, though, tell whether a photo, video, or an audio is a deep fake? And are there any tools that exist that can identify a deep fake? Sure, April. For individuals, it's really all up to manual detection work. Or another way of putting it is exercising critical thinking skills. So the Washington Post has an article that discusses some methods of spotting deep fake videos. The same method, by the way, could be applied to other types of media, if it's whether it's photographs or sound. But here are some key points. First, being aware of types of manipulated videos, such as 
videos with missing context, or other videos that might employ deceptive editing. Also, the article suggests checking who posted the video and trying to find the original video from the original source, because many times videos encountered in social media may be reposted from the original source, but with some manipulated edited techniques embedded. Finally, notice where and when the video was filmed to investigate whether the video has been manipulated or you're watching the original video as it was filmed in the first place. Now, there has been some academic research done that explored using deep learning algorithms, which are also used for creating deep fake media to automate manipulated media detection. So for example, in 2019, researchers from the Technical University of Munich, University of Federico Zecundo of Naples, and the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg were able to train a neural network to distinguish unaltered media from deepfake created media. Essentially, the researchers created deepfake media datasets using four different types of deepfake creation algorithms. And then they trained the algorithms to detect manipulated media based on the deepfake media dataset. In essence, you're using the same technology that is allowing other users to create deepfake media to detect deepfake media in the first place. I think the future on fighting disinformation and misinformation lies with employing deep learning algorithms where we can automate deepfake media detection systems in order for the rest of us to move on with our lives. I don't think we have the time and resources to manually detect deepfake media in the future as they are going to be proliferating in the social media net. Instead, just like spam filters, we should automate that process so that we can spend more of our resources elsewhere efficiently. I agree with you, Daniel, and that's a great place for us to conclude our discussion today. I know that I and I hope our listeners are better informed and able to possibly recognize automated false information, but if not, at least they're conscious and aware of it now, and that, that's wonderful. Daniel, Brennan, we appreciate you being here today. A huge thank you to everyone listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Exhibit AI, to hear more about the intersection of law and emerging technologies. For more from CLCT, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, all linked in the description of this episode. Last but not least, this podcast is made possible by grant funding provided by the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, funded by Cisco Systems, Inc. We appreciate their continued support for our independent research efforts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this is Exhibit AI signing off.